Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, meet me in Acts chapter 2. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, catching up from the couple past few weeks. So Acts chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 41. Hey, I heard a a story recently about a guy who um, wanted to go to a Broadway show so badly that he, he booked an airfare ticket, he got on the plane, he arrived in Manhattan, he stayed on Times Square, he got in line, he got the ticket, showed up, and the place was packed out. Like, literally, not a seat was left except for one. And it was the one right next to him. And at intermission, a guy walked up to him. They're sitting on the front row. And he looks at him. He says, what is going, like, why is that seat available? Oh, he goes, oh, that's, that's for my, my wife. Uh, my wife just died. And we used to go to shows together all the time. So uh, at a tradition, like, I decided I was going to go when I was going to buy her seat and leave it open. And the guy was like, man, that's, that's really difficult. I'm sorry. Like, do you not have a friend or somebody that could have come with you? Like, it's really difficult to go to these things alone. He goes, unfortunately, I don't. They're all at her funeral right now. The, the problem is, um, he was building what we call a house. And building a house is, is literally a structure that, that serves its purpose, and then you move on to the next thing. He wasn't building a home. And, and the reality is, is for many of us, that's what we do with our life, was we build houses. Um, we, we move from one thing to the next, and one of the things I've noticed, especially over the last decade, is how much more transient we've become as a people. Um, we're, we're coming and we're going. We're, we're not rooted in places, and, and when we do that, we tend to experience never building a home, but building a house, and if you've ever built a house instead of a home, you recognize that there's, there, there's nothing like having a home. Homes don't matter where they are. It's about the people. What you're going to see today, what you're going to see today is that Jesus birthed the first church, and it's way more about building a home than a house. It's about experiencing relationships that that when the seat is empty, the person next to you is filled with somebody, that that you show up when things are important, that you celebrate the things that are making a difference in the people's lives around you, and, and, and you continually dig into this thing and invest in this thing called a relationship. If you recall, if you recall back to a couple weeks ago, Jesus is now called the first apostles to go and start this great church planting movement. He tells them, you're going to be my witnesses all over the world, starting in Jerusalem and then going to Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you didn't know this, it's actually the table of contents for the book of Acts. You're going to see the gospel go to all those places sequentially, but it's even, it's even bigger than that. Right, 2,000 years later, we are the ends of the earth. Right, Whenever he talked about the gospel going to the ends of the earth, I don't know if you know this or not, but the U.S. is about as far away from Jerusalem as it gets. The gospel has gone and it's continuing to go. So Jesus tells them to go, and now you get to Acts chapter 2, and the day of Pentecost has come, and, and you're going to see the birth of the first church. You're going to see that God plans to build a home that will go until he comes back. Check out verse 1. Here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost, it was a it was Jewish holiday that took place 50 days after the Passover. So if you do the math, Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples. He ascends into heaven, and then 10 days later, Pentecost arrives. 
Pentecost, uh, uh, the Passover celebrated this, this thing back in Jewish history whenever the Lord passed over the sins of Israel in the Exodus, all right? And, and it has this undertone that is so important. God told everybody in Israel, hey, I want you to go ahead and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house, and if you do that, I'm going to pass over that. So on the Passover, what you find is that they're celebrating the time when God saved them. And for you and I, this should be the most significant reality on the planet because that blood represented the blood of Jesus who would take his own blood and wipe it over the cross. And, and now for all of history, he can pass over our sins because of that. So the Israelites, they, they thought that they were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival and to commemorate what God had done. And yet, what God is doing is bringing the nations to Jerusalem like you're about to see. So people from all over the world are coming and ascending on this city, and God is about to birth the first church. So 50 days after the Passover meal, where Jesus celebrates with the, the disciples in the upper room, God brings the nations together, and it's massively important. Let me connect some dots for you so you can see how all this is working. We've, we've studied the book of Daniel. In 586 BC, God sends the nation of Israel into exile. And what you find in that very moment, 400 years before this day in Acts chapter 2, is God was sending the nation of Israel out. Okay? And in that moment, when God is sending them out, what he's beginning to do is birth the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world. Like the prophet Habakkuk would say, God, what are you doing? And God looked at Habakkuk and said, even if I told you, you wouldn't begin to understand what's going on. What God was doing is he was spreading the nations out so that in Acts chapter 2, he can bring them back. They would hear the gospel and they would go back and start the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world. Y'all, do you know why Christianity spread so fast? It spread so fast because 400 years before this moment, God had already started mobilizing the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world. So I need you to hear me say this. I need you to hear me say this because I need to hear it. When you think that God doesn't know what he's doing, when you think that God's not working, he is. He's always doing something. He's working in the background to do things that you might not even begin to understand if he told you. He's weaving the story through redemptive history so that he can accomplish his plans. And even when it doesn't make sense to this side of eternity, you can look back and you can say, God, you knew exactly what you were doing the entire time. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. So here's what it says in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice that there was a sound that came from heaven. That means that it came from outside of them and it came down. Why is that important? Uh, again, Acts chapter 2, one of the coolest things is it's an entire reversal of all the curses of the Old Testament. The last time that everybody spoke the same language in the Bible was Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. In that moment in Genesis chapter 11, what you see is that man is trying to build his way to God, and God takes them, and he spreads them out, and they all, spread, they all speak different languages. Every single time that we try to make our way to heaven, this is what happens. We come falling down. Yet, the Bible is all about God making his way down to us. Why? Write this down. When God comes down, we come together. When we go up, we grow apart. 
It's all about humility. Y'all, the church is supposed to be a picture of the reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's not about us trying to make our way to God. It's about us trying to allow God to make his way down to us. See, because when Babel happened, the unraveling of society happened and dystopia started. It's what we experience today. And that's what pride does. Pride puffs up. It makes us feel like we can make our own way to God. And yet the storyline of the Bible is not how do you get to God, but how does God come back to you? See, humility makes room for God to come down. Humility has ears to hear God speak, and when God speaks, everything changes. And that's what the gospel is about. Like Pastor Brian said last week, the gospel is about tearing down the walls of hostility and uniting a people, and pride is about creating disunity that says that I'm better than you. The first church was united around something outside of itself. It was supernatural. The Spirit of God came down, and it rested on them. Notice, notice a couple of things that happen when the Spirit of God comes down. Number one is wind. You, you'll see this all the way through the Bible, that, that this idea of the Spirit and wind tend to go hand in hand. When God speaks, matter of fact, did you know this, that the, the Greek word and the Hebrew word for spirit is actually the same exact word for breath or wind? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is ruach. In the New Testament, it's pneumatos. It's actually the same exact word for wind. So, so you get this, when, when God spoke and he breathed life into Adam, he breathed his ruach into Adam, it says. Or in the book of Ezekiel, when the dry bones come to life, it is his wind or his spirit or his ruach that goes into them. Every time that you see God move, you see this idea of wind and then fire. Think about God speaking through fire. Fire, fire we often think about it as judgment, but the Bible actually uses it more like purification than judgment. It's, it's like whenever you put gold into fire, everything that is not gold gets wiped away, and what you end up getting is a more pure and beautiful thing than you had before. So when God, when God wanted to speak to Moses, what did he do? He spoke to him through a burning bush. Or whenever God led the Israelites by night, he led them through a pillar of fire. See, when God comes down, it's not just judgment, it's actually purifying, and it's beautiful, and God lights himself up. And then they speak different languages. Now, got to address this really quickly. Here's the thing about tongues in the Bible, okay? The normative way that you see tongues spoken about in the Bible is an actual language spoken to people who don't understand the gospel and don't have anybody to interpret it. Okay, that's how you normally see it in the Bible. What you're going to see is the first church had the ability to speak the gospel to people who didn't understand their language so that they could. It'd be like me going to Afghanistan, and it's just me, and I'm able to supernaturally speak Farsi so that they can understand the gospel in their language, and they don't have anybody to interpret it. That's how you see it spoken about here, and that's how you see it spoken about normally in the Bible. But what's the point? Let me just say this really quickly. When the Spirit of God comes down, everything changes. Now, the manifestation of God's Spirit in the church might look different today in this season, but God still speaks and God still moves through His Spirit. The same thing happens when God comes. You cannot, you cannot come face to face with the Holy Spirit and not be changed. It'd be like me showing up here 10 minutes late and I walk on stage and I'm like, bro, I'm really sorry. I just got hit by a Mack truck. It was bad on Highway 9, but don't worry, I'm here. You would look at me and be like, that's ridiculous. There's no way you could get hit by a semi-truck 
and not be changed. That's the way that the Bible speaks about God working in your life. It's not like, it's not like everything changes in a moment, but your life does change. And if you come to faith in Jesus, you'll begin to notice that things change. Here's verse five. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You see it? They, they come together from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitudes came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astounded saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in our native language? Corinthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phygria and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language, our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and all were perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked them, saying that they were filled with new wine. You see how they were amazed? You know, they were amazed. And it is amazing. Jesus just told these guys that they were going to take the gospel to the nations. Like, that was the command. And the very first thing that he does is bring the nations to them. It's absolutely incredible. In one moment, the Spirit of God breaks down every single dividing wall of hostility that culture created. If you actually go through and read and study these names, these are people from all over. They're not just from Jerusalem. They're not just from Judea. They're from different parts of the Greco-Roman Empire. They probably wouldn't have gotten along. And yet, they had all experienced a fresh move of God's Spirit in a moment. Maybe just maybe we need to experience the same thing. Because I think that it's when God's spirit comes down that the dividing walls that Paul or that Brian talked about last week tend to fall down to. What you're going to see is that the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world was started by a bunch of displaced people who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They had an encounter with God, it changed who they were, and they took the gospel back. Don't miss how amazing this is. When God calls you to be a part of his story, he does an amazing work. Like Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Every bit of it is. So the next time you believe the lie that God is distant or he doesn't care or he doesn't know what he's doing, go back and look at the story. In those moments when he doesn't look like he knows what he's doing, he is doing what he knows to do. Acts chapter 2, like I told you, it's a, it's a storyline of the entire Old Testament from the Garden of Eden to Exodus all the way to the exiles. God is moving to build his church. And the church would be the place that God would build his home on earth as it is in heaven. See, Acts chapter 2, let me give you a couple examples of how this works. When the Spirit of God, I don't know if you recognize this, but the first time the Spirit of God came down at Pentecost, it happened on Mount Sinai when God delivered the law to the nation of Israel through, ex, uh, through Moses. In that moment, the people of God, 3,000 of them, were on the bottom of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. The first time the Spirit of God came through the law, 3,000 people died. What you see in Acts chapter 2 is when God's Spirit comes down here, 3,000 people become alive in the gospel. Here, here's another one. 
that you're going to see is the very first time that God's people try to ascend up to heaven. What happens is they get spread out speaking different languages. When the gospel comes and the Spirit of God descends on them, they come together and they all speak the same language. See, the church is the beginning of God building his kingdom. And what Peter wants you to see, and he's about to connect the dots, is that one day when God's kingdom comes, it's going to reverse all the curses that the sin of this world has brought on. Here's the big idea. God's kingdom takes the chaos that sin has created and brings the world back to order. And y'all, the church is supposed to be a little glimpse of that today. We're supposed to be the refuge where people can come together, where all of culture says you have nothing in common. We can say we have Jesus in common. Listen to me, church. God doesn't just do this on a macro scale either. He wants to do this in your life. He wants to take the broken things and make it whole again, right? He wants to come and live inside of you, literally change you from the inside out so that you can have joy and be whole again. You know how I know this? In the Old Testament, where was the meeting place of God? The temple. When Acts chapter two happens, do you know where he says the meeting place of God has moved to? Inside of you. Remember this, John chapter one, Jesus says that. Jesus says that he is the temple that comes to live inside of us. He said the reality is the meeting place of God is not a central location anymore. It's you. So you can actually have access to God anytime that you want. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. The Bible is never, ever, ever, listen, this is so important. It's never about how you get to heaven. The Bible is always about how heaven gets back to you. Because you're not going to go somewhere one day. God is going to come back to live here with you. He's not about building a house. He's about coming to live and build his home in you. And City Church, this is his home. Not these four walls, or I guess there's like 36 walls in here. It's you. You are the place bought by the blood of Jesus where he wants to come and live and reside to build his kingdom. Peter says this in verse 14, but Peter Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. Those people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Maybe the best speech ever. You see what Peter's saying? Guys, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. If it was five, maybe. But nine? No way. Literally, that's what he says. Hey, let it be known to you. Something else is happening here. Watch what he does, though. I'm going to breeze through this, but he is going to quote several Old Testament passages to show you that God is doing a great work, and it was all about this moment. Look at it, verse 16. But this is what he uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servant and my female servant, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's Peter's point in the very first sermon that he preaches. Prophecy has been fulfilled. 
God has poured out his spirit on all people and he's made himself accessible. Now, what you need to understand is that when Joel says all people, he's not saying all people without exception. He's saying all people without distinction. Meaning this, God's spirit does not discriminate. It's for all people. Whether you're black or you're white or you're American or Middle Eastern, whether you're a murderer or you've been the most religious person who has ever lived on this planet, all that matters is that you received the gift of the Holy Spirit and you do that by putting your faith in Jesus. Y'all, this gets me fired up because that means that nobody on this planet is too far gone for the gospel. You're not too far gone for the gospel. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. Because it's not about what you've done, it's about what he did. There's a huge theological point that we have to cover because, again, there's a lot going on here, but here's, here's one of them. This idea, there's some schools of theology that says that you have to be like a super Christian to get baptized by the Spirit of God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord is baptized, meaning you fully immerse and you receive all of God's Spirit in that moment. So if you ever want to be filled with the Spirit of God, all you have to do is what the prophet Joel is saying, call upon the name of the Lord. And if you put your faith in Jesus and you call on his name, all that simply means is to receive his name is that you submit your name and you receive his name. The Spirit of God comes and dwells inside of you. Now, there's, there's this idea in the Bible that God does pour out his Spirit in supernatural ways to fill you for the purposes of preaching the gospel. But there's, and I know this gets in the weeds a little bit, but there's one baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes the moment you come to faith. Many fillings, but one baptism. Here's my question for you. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? I, and I don't mean like, have you prayed a prayer? You know, one of the most convicting passages of scripture that I've ever seen is when, when he says, even the demons believe in Jesus and shudder. So what? What he's saying there is belief in and of itself does not change you. What does change you is submission to call upon the name of the Lord. It's giving your life over to Jesus and saying, I'm going to step off my throne of my life so that you can step onto it. Have you done that? If you have, then the Spirit of God wants to come and dwell inside of you. And if you've called upon the name of the Lord, look at, you're going to see this in a little bit. Here's what you need to do next. You need to be baptized. Like Peter says to these guys at the very end, once you've called upon the name of the Lord, publicly profess that through baptism. Now, Peter's about to give you two primary ways that you can know that Jesus really is who he says that he is. I want to show them to you. Here's the first one. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. The first way that Peter says that you can know that Jesus is who he said that he is, is miracles. They had experienced miracles with their own eyes. These men had seen Jesus heal the sick, give sight to the blind, feed 5,000 people with a kid's happy meal. No one had denied it because they had experienced it. One of the things you have to understand is when these statements are made in the Bible, if they were not valid, they would have been refuted, right? This whole word that you have was written in the midst of severe persecution with a Roman empire that was trying to get rid of it. And yet, 
No one refuted it. That's Peter's point. And like I told you before, a miracle is simply when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. And y'all, miracles still happen all the time today. Like you can't tell me that two, a year and a half ago, whenever a doctor told my wife when she went into labor at 22 weeks that she would deliver our baby within 24 hours, there's a 99% chance, and that our son probably would not survive. And then they had to induce her labor at 34 weeks and the little man is running around here like any other normal child. Now, you can't tell me that miracles don't exist. He's a living, breathing miracle. And if you've called upon the name of the Lord, let me just tell you, that is as miraculous as what's happened with my son, Keller. It is a miracle, and God still does miracles every single day. Peter's saying, the number one way that you can know that Jesus is who he said that he is is because you saw it. You saw it with your own eyes, and you experienced it. Then he says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Y'all, here's the audacious claim that you have to wrap your minds around if you're going to get the gospel. It's that pronoun, you. I don't know if you're anything like me, you're probably sitting there thinking, not me, I wasn't there. They probably thought that. These people were scattered, a diaspora, all over the Roman Empire, and they're probably like, I wasn't here when that happened. And Peter was like, yes, but you have to understand that your sins nailed Jesus to the cross. All of us played a part in this. But don't get so worked up, because here's what he says next. But God had a plan, and it was God's plan for Jesus to die for you. Not only did Jesus have to die for you, he was glad to die for you. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. He didn't just die for you, he died instead of you. And it's in this one verse that Peter expounds the most complex theological point in the history of the world, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Here's what he's saying in this one passage. God put Jesus on the cross and you crucified him. God gave Jesus up and you did it. They go hand in hand. There's divine sovereignty that God was sovereign over the whole thing and human responsibility that we have to acknowledge we did it. Y'all, when that happens, everything changes because of the very next statement, verse 24. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. See, the resurrection changes everything. Like Joby Martin says, if the tomb is empty, anything's possible. Write this down. We put him down but God raised him up. That's the confession. Peter's first sermon is shouting that everyone in the crowd knows that Jesus rose from the dead. They know it. They know because they saw it. They were there. And the reason that you can believe, this is the second reason, that you can believe that Jesus is who he said that he is, is because the Bible makes the claim that Jesus rose from the dead and nobody refuted it. Peter makes this claim Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells you, Jesus rose from the dead and over 500 of you who are still alive saw him. It's not like there's a book saying, no, Paul, you lied. Or that 1 Corinthians didn't circulate because everybody knew it was a joke. No, they knew it happened. See, that where the gospel claims that Jesus rose from the dead and the Roman authorities tried to cover it up, they, they continued to, and yet nobody refuted it. 
Instead of people refuting the claims of the resurrection, in Acts chapter 2, over 3,000 people come to faith. You know, the church was birthed, and within 200 years, they, they, they estimate that one-third of the entire Roman Empire is worshiping Jesus, and the emperor of Rome, who was trying to kill this religion, is now a, a Christian. How in the world, how in the world does it go from a persecuted religion to the most influential religion of all time within one century? The resurrection changes everything. That's what Peter says. You saw the miracles, and you saw the dead guy get out of the grave. I don't know about you, but the next time you raise from the dead, I'll probably take that seriously too. You can't come face to face with the resurrection and not be changed by it. Listen to me, when God determines it, it will happen. Death could not hold Jesus down because God raised him up. And because God raised him up, he can change your life too. That's Peter's point. He's making it personal. All of this is for you. He goes on and he says this in verse 25. For David, now he's connecting to David because he wants you to see that the Old Testament is talking about Jesus. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See what he's saying? Ultimately, none of this is about David. It's all about Jesus. Peter wants you to connect the dots that these 66 books written by 40 different authors are telling one complete story, the story about how Jesus would come and fulfill all of this so that you can have a home with God again. You know what the difference between a, uh, a glacier and an avalanche is? One of them takes millions of years, and seems like it's making no impact. The other one, an avalanche, comes quickly, destroys a lot in a moment. Here's the difference, though. One of them makes Yosemite, and the other one's gone within days. You know, the gospel's like a glacier. It moves slowly through redemptive history, and what Jesus wants you to know, though, is it's changing everything. Like, you might not see it in that moment, but if you actually put the whole thing together, what you see is it's not a splash in the pan. It is a crater that is going to do away with evil because God wants to bring his kingdom back. He's not about just making big old smoke in the sky. He's about changing the entire world. And sometimes it seems like he's inching along. Sometimes it seems like it's making not that big of an impact. But if you look back, what you'll see is that God is doing an entire 
work that changes all the history of the world. Listen to me. It's not about David, Peter says. And not just David. It wasn't about Abraham. It wasn't about Abraham who took his one and only son, made him carry wood up to the top of a mountain to sacrifice. No, it was about a God who would take wood on his own back, walk up the hill to Calvary to sacrifice his one and only son. It wasn't about Moses taking his people to the promised land. It was about a greater Moses who would take his people out of the exodus of this world to make a home with them and build a better kingdom. It wasn't about Joseph who was sold into slavery and positioned himself as he become, as he humbled himself so that he could be exalted to save his people. Save his people. No. What does Jesus tell you in Philippians chapter 2? It's about a greater Moses, a greater Joseph, who would humble himself so that he could be highly exalted. It wasn't about David fighting Goliath, your great enemy. It was about Jesus who would come to do war against the greatest enemy in this world. It wasn't about the prophets, the priests, and the kings of the Old Testament. It's about a greater prophet who came to warn his people, a greater priest who sacrificed himself, and a life-giving king who will ultimately come to rule this world. Y'all, I could go on and on and on. The entire thing is about Jesus. If I had time, I'd tell you how he's the greater Daniel or how he was the greater Rahab or Hosea, how he was the greater Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Every single story of the Old Testament is pointing to your ultimate king and it's Jesus. That's what Peter wants you to know. It's all about Jesus. Everything is about him. See, the point is that Jesus does it all. It wasn't Peter's intellect or education that turned the world upside down. Matter of fact, Peter was a fisherman, and if you read the Bible, he wasn't even a very good one. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a religious nut. These guys weren't scholars. They didn't have influence or power. They were common people filled with the Spirit of God who turned the world upside down. Maybe the most profound thing in the entire book of Acts is whenever Paul goes to these cities to plant churches, it says he's met by the brothers there who had already planted the churches. Where did these guys come from? Acts chapter two. They weren't scholars. Y'all, I think we can learn a lot from this. The formula for changing the world isn't about power or success. The formula for changing the world is about humility and being filled with God's spirit, being open to God doing amazing works through us. Now watch what happens when we do that. Verse 37. Now they were cut to the heart when they heard this. You know, that's the only place in the Bible that that phrase is used. It it means that they were literally torn in pieces by the gospel. These people, they're sitting here and they're hearing it, and Peter is just dissecting the Old Testament, and he's showing them that everything that they had put their hope in was all about this man named Jesus, who came and he lived a perfect life. He died our death in our place. He rose from the dead, and and Jesus is sitting there, and, and Peter's like, that's who it's all about. And when they heard the gospel for the first time, it says that they were cut in pieces. Literally, that's what the gospel does. When you finally get Jesus, and I'm not just talking about the cross. I'm talking about how the entire thing is about him. Every moment is about God wanting to make his home to be with you. It's about a rescue mission to fix this broken world. And maybe, maybe you're sitting there right now and you need to hear that. Like your world feels broken. It feels like you've gone through so much. And sometimes you sit back and you're like, God, what are you doing? Peter's like he's doing something far bigger than you could ever imagine in this moment. Like you think 
You think that Satan is one, but like Joseph says, what Satan meant for evil, he meant for good. And the Gospels will prove that. So they're cut to the heart. And Peter said to them, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? By the way, that should be your response. When you come face to face with the gospel, that should be all of our response. We should be cut, and then we should respond, what shall we do with this? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See it? It's for everyone. Let me just ask you, have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you received this spirit? Here's how it works. Peter says, you should repent. Repentance, it's, it's simply not asking for forgiveness. It's changing your mind about something is actually the way that the Bible talks about it, which means like that you, you, you look at what you've decided you say, I no longer want to do that, and then you change directions away from it. That's what repentance means. It's the word metanoia. It's, it's to turn away from something and go to something else. Not to say, I'm sorry, but to walk away from. And then you get baptized. Baptism is simply a public profession of faith. Have you done those two things? If you have, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation, the Bible says, made alive in Christ. Y'all, it's the greatest exchange in the history of the world. You give Jesus your filth and rags, and he gives you all of his righteousness. You do nothing, you get everything. The moment you repent, the moment you follow Jesus, you get all of God. You get salvation, and you get his spirit to come and live inside of you. Have you done that yet? And many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What would it take for us to experience a move of God like that again today? For us to experience the spirit of God breaking through in our lives and changing everything. What do you think? I mean, can you imagine the feeling? Maybe it's your parents. Maybe for some of you, it's a wayward kid. And you're praying, God, would you break through that? Maybe it's your neighbors or the people you coach with, your friends. I don't know about you, but I long for that day when you know, everything comes to fruition. Like, the reason why we started this church five years ago, because we want to see God move like this. We want to see God move and, and open up doors, not just in our own lives, but in our friends' lives. Imagine what it would look like if the Spirit of God just came down and broke through those dividing walls. Now, here's the challenge that that most people never talk about with this passage. How about the 120 people? Can you imagine? It, it would have been exhilarating, but also terrifying. Think about this. 
Before this happened, they were pretty cozy. Things were great. 120 of them, they're all worshiping Jesus. It's not messy at all. Somebody gets sick. You're going to see in Acts chapter 2, 42, they just give. They give, they take care of, they pray for one another. They know what's going on. It's like a Cheers episode. Everybody knows your name. And then in a moment, 3,000 people come to faith. Think about how hard that would be. They don't have leadership structures. They don't have elders. They don't have discipleship pipelines. These people probably had messy marriages, bad kids, right? They came with a lot of baggage. And yet in that moment, the struggle of what God was doing and what they were comfortable with probably came head on. But you know what? The church exploded because the humility of those 120 people. Because they were willing to receive that messiness. You're going to see it. Acts chapter 6, there's fights over two different people groups, the Hellenists who are Greeks and the Jews who are Hebrews that are fighting over who gets food, literally trying to take care of one another. It wasn't like this was easy. Go read the book of 1 Corinthians and the whole thing was a big old mess. There's there's people coming, there's people going, there's, there's lives that are being ruined, there's false teachers, and yet they were so hungry for God to move that they were willing to embrace the mess to see God do powerful work in the people around them. I'm just convinced that if we want to see God move like that today, we've got to be as open-handed as they were to say, God, you know what? My neighbors and their worldview, it's a little messy. And having them over for dinner, it's a little annoying. Got going to the spaces and playing and hanging out in those places and, and, and doing life with people like that, that's not easy. Matter of fact, it's a lot more comfortable to hang out with my 120, hang out with my small group and the people that I like. And I like my small group. And I don't want anybody else to join my small group. Because every time they do, it gets messy. And I don't want to multiply my group. Because whenever I multiply my group, you know what? We lose something that we had. And Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm building a kingdom. I'm building a kingdom that's not just for you. And if you actually think about it, the reason why you're sitting in this room right now is because somebody was willing to embrace you when you were a mess. They were willing to invite you in and to be patient with you and to care for you and to bring you along. Imagine. Imagine what it would look like if we did the same thing. That everybody experienced the gospel because we were open-handed with it. Maybe one of the most convicting things, Corey Tinboom said it like this, said, the devil can't make you bad, he'll just make you busy. Here's my question. Are we too busy or are we too inflexible to let the people around us experience the same move of God that we've experienced? See, I believe that the first church flourished because those 120 people were hungry for the world to experience Jesus the way that they did. I believe that Peter really knew what it was like to be who he was before that. 
And Andrew and Simon and Bartholomew and Matthew and Levi and Paul, they, they experienced life apart from Jesus and they experienced the move of God's spirit and what it had done to change them. And they're like, I want everyone to experience Jesus like me. And I'm willing to move heaven and earth to see it happen. I think Jesus wants to build a home, not just a house, but a home. And he wants to use you to do it. He wants to change the world. I think that the same mandate that he gave 2,000 years ago is the same exact one that he continues to do today. And here's my question. Why not us? Why not now? Why not the same power that came 2,000 years ago? Why not now? I always go back to this. Psalm chapter 2, what does he say? Ask. God says, ask, and I will give the nations as your heritage. I think, why not us? Why not ask? God, would you change this world and would you use me? That's a dangerous prayer. But I think that's a prayer worth living for. God, would you change this world and would you use us? Matter of fact, I want to I end by just praying that prayer over us. Father, I know that that's an audacious, dangerous prayer to pray. To ask you to use us. But I also know that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Lord, there's freedom to not be owned by the things of this world. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy them. I think that you're a God that wants to give us joy and joy everlasting, but to be owned by things, be enslaved by those things. Lord, there's freedom in you. So Father, I beg you, I ask you that the people around us that we know that need to hear the gospel, that need to experience that same freedom, God, would you pour out your spirit on this place to do that work? Would you help us to worship you and honor you? God, if there's anybody in this room that, that hears my voice, that needs to be cut to the heart like the people were in Acts chapter 2. And that needs to repent and be baptized. God, I pray that you would you would wreck their lives with your spirit like you did mine 20 years ago. And change them. And Lord, the same way that you did it for me, the same way that you're going to do it for people in this room, and the same way you already have, I pray that you would do it for my neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our families, our children. Lord, because the gospel is for anyone, anyone who is far off. So Lord, would you do a great work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.